there. Thank you so much for downloading this episode of the East London History Show with me, your host, Elena Guthrie. Now, if you couldn't tell, we have a little bit of a harpsichord Tudor vibe to the podcast today, and that is because we are at Sutton House in Hackney, which is the oldest house in Hackney, built in 1535. So... 50 years after the Tudor dynasty started, which began in 1485, I think, with King Henry VII winning the Wars of the Roses. I mean, unnecessary context, but it might help to put the house in history so you know what's going on in England at the time. Henry VIII dies in 1547, and Queen Elizabeth, who goes on to be the last Tudor monarch, dies in 1605, so it's slap bang in the centre of that. And today we are doing a tour around the house with the Visitor Experiences Officer, Joe Nightingale. Now, I don't want to give too much away because that's what the podcast is for, but it is an incredibly fascinating house. It is a house of many lives. It's been the home to Thomas Cromwell's secretary, and he was at one point Henry VIII's secretary of state before he had his head chopped off. It's been the home to a governor of the East India Company. It was also once a school for girls in the Victorian era. It's been a theatre and also the home to squatters and maybe even some ghosts. Would you believe it? So hopefully that has whet your appetite enough. So let's get stuck in. I'm joined here with Joe Nightingale, who is the Visitors Experience Officer at Sutton House. Thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome. We are at Sutton House in Hackney. Sutton House is one of the oldest homes in Hackney, and we are here to do a kind of whistle-stop tour of the house. So, Joe, could you set the scene for us? Yeah, sure. So, Sutton House is on Homerton High Street, very close to the centre of Hackney. And it is the oldest house in Hackney remaining. It was built in 1535 for a courtier of Henry VIII called Ralph Sadler, or sometimes called Rafe Sadler, depending on how poshly you want to say his name. And it was built at a time when Hackney was very rural. We start our tour by looking at some models that show Hackney as just starting to be developed with a few fields and a few courtiers' houses, but very little here. And Sutton House was the biggest house in the area. And it was built in a very typical Tudor style in an H-shaped plan and from bricks, which was actually very unusual at that time. So I think I read somewhere that it was also known as like the brick house or the brick place. So why were bricks so unusual? Well, the Tudors were only really just rediscovering the art of building in brick. The Romans had used brick, but at the time this house was built, most houses were built from wattle and daub plaster with those kind of twisty wooden frames that you see in old cities across the UK. And this house really was built from brick, I think, for a couple of reasons. One was that in Hackney, we had the right kind of earth to make bricks. And so there was a bit of opportunism. They were starting to make bricks here at that time. But probably more important was that the person the house was being built for, Ralph Sadler, was somebody at the start of a very distinguished career. And he was someone who wanted to be seen to be going places. And by using brick, he was using the latest technology at that time and showing off that he was pioneering and at the cutting edge. 
and that's why the house got the name of the brick place because it was considered something really unusual at that time. Can you tell us a little bit more about who Ralph Sadler was? He was, I think, a really significant person in the Tudor court. Right from an early age when he built this house, he was only 28 at that stage, and he was an associate and a secretary really to Thomas Cromwell, who has become quite well known as the right-hand man of Henry VIII. And this was at a really significant time when Henry VIII was altering the country from having been a Catholic country for hundreds and hundreds of years to becoming a Protestant country with himself at the head of what was now going to be the Church of England. And Thomas Cromwell was really closely involved in that and some say was a bit of a driving force behind making it happen for political reasons. And then his secretary, Ralph Sadler, who lived here, was his man on the ground who was carrying out a lot of the actual activities around what was called the dissolution of the monasteries from 1536. And that meant going up to monasteries and abbeys in various parts of the country, like Yorkshire, for example, and literally disseminating them, ransacking them, seizing the goods, throwing the monks out and putting the places out of business because they really thought they had too much power and that they were corrupt and self-interested. So that's how he started his career in that very significant role. And he also went on diplomatic missions for Henry VIII to Scotland, which was a very important negotiation at that time as well, before we had a union with Scotland. And then he went on to have so many roles, it's impossible to list them all really, but one significant one is that after Henry VIII's death, he was on the council that governed the country while Henry's young son was on the throne. So Henry VIII's son Edward ruled from the ages of nine to 15, and Ralph Sadler had a lot of power during that period helping him to govern. He also came back to power really during Elizabeth I's reign because she brought the country back to Protestantism again after a period of Catholicism. And so he bounced back into very senior roles like her Secretary of State again, and he was her ambassador to Scotland and to France, and actually the jailer to Mary Queen of Scots as well. And the last act he carried out when he was 79 years old was to sign the death warrant for Mary Queen of Scots. Whoa. So he was still such an important person at that point. And the very fact that he lived to be 80 is really significant as well, because that was very unusual for Tudors, and certainly those that were in the court of Henry VIII and Elizabeth I, who were quite often getting their heads lobbed off. That's what I was going to say. How did he manage to live so long when, like you say, constantly changing between Protestants and Catholics? He's done an amazing job. Yeah, and there's another story I can tell you about his personal life as well, that he uh, caused a bit of a scandal that he bounced back from. I think he must have been extremely charming, but also a very good negotiator and very politically astute. And he was obviously very highly trusted by the monarchs that he worked for. I read recently that he advised Elizabeth I not to get married when she was considering getting married. And if that's true, that's so significant because the whole history of the country from that point would have been different if she'd married and had children. So he was obviously really trusted and his advice was adhered to, including by monarchs. And was he ever locked up in the tower or was one of his contemporaries? He was locked in the tower briefly because his mentor Thomas Cromwell fell from favour with Henry VIII and was thrown into the tower and he went along with him initially as an associate of his. But where Thomas Cromwell was quickly executed for treason, Ralph Sadler managed to bounce back and he was actually given Thomas Cromwell's position as Secretary of State at that point and also knighted. 
So this all indicates that Henry was obviously really fond of Ralph and really trusted him because that was just one of the times that he bounced back from a difficult situation. I mean, I feel like he's just like a classic East Ender, you know, like clearly just got like the gift of the gab, can chat to anyone. Yeah. Interesting. Do we know anything about his marriage, his relationships? Yeah, I mean, that's actually the, uh, the other story that is really interesting about him, I think, which is that he met a lady called Helen Barr when he was actually living with Thomas Cromwell as a, a young man when he was about 14. And he fell in love with her. And she had been married, but her husband had disappeared fighting in Ireland and he was assumed dead. So they were considered free to marry. And although she was actually only working as a laundress, they married for love and he ignored advice to find somebody of higher status. And they built this house together and had seven children. So they were really happy and it, it was a successful marriage. But then 11 years into the marriage, the original husband, a chap called Matthew Barr, reappeared and he wasn't actually dead. And that caused a real scandal because at that time, Henry VIII had just got divorced and introduced the idea really to the country so that he could marry Anne Boleyn. But it wasn't something that most people were even considering. And the fact that her husband was alive really just created the impression that she'd bigamously married Ralph and that their children were illegitimate. And for somebody in Ralph Sadler's position, that was a real scandal that threatened his career. But it's another example of his political astuteness, I think, and his charm, because he managed to have an Act of Parliament passed. He was actually an MP as well as all of his other roles, which was passed privately and never read out in the House. But it said that if a woman had been abandoned by her husband for seven years or more, she was automatically considered free to remarry. And so they hadn't done anything wrong, conveniently enough, by marrying. And that's actually still on the statute book as the basis of modern day desertion law, that seven years after desertion, somebody is considered free to end the marriage. So uh, it's another significant act of Ralph Sadler's. So I guess that is an example of how we're all still feeling the legacy of this man. It's fascinating that there is this house, Sutton House, like a tangible reminder of who this person was and how influential he was on British history. Absolutely, yeah. So we've got some models here. Let's talk about what the area would have looked like in when it was built 1535. So Hackney then was the same layout as it is now and there are recognisable features but the model we're looking at shows that it was largely rural. It's a very green model and there's just really one major street running through the middle which is Mare Street which then becomes Church Street and that's still there today. And you can see on there St. Augustine's Church, of which the tower still survives, but the rest of the church was rebuilt during the Georgian period. And the only other landmark really is Hackney Brook, which is still there, but has now gone underground. And it follows the same line as the overground railway line, so people can possibly get an idea of where Hackney Brook is. But otherwise, we've just got a few houses dotted around, the largest of which is Sutton House, which then had quite a large formal knot garden at the back, which was typical of the Tudor period. And these would have been lived in, as I say, mainly by courtiers to Henry VIII and possibly some merchants. And it was becoming a, a bit of a fashionable rural retreat from central London at that time. And so the aerial view of Sutton House is kind of like a bit of like a wonky H? Yeah, that's right. And that was because there was originally a tanning house built next door. That was actually built in 1490. So although it's no longer there, the foundations are. So that is the oldest part of the site these days but it did mean that Sutton House had to be built on a slight wonk to uh, sit next to it. 
and the person who built it, Ralph, he moved his father into the townhouse. So it became a little bit of a family enclave straight away. And so I guess the thing that I think of when I look at this aerial snapshot of what the area would have looked like, if you ever think about how sometimes when you're on planes and you're landing and it's just rolling hills of greenery, that is kind of what Hackney looked like. Yeah, that's right. Which is astounding. And I think that's really important to remember is that this area of London was considered rural countryside. It was a countryside escape, like you said. Well, it wasn't even an area of London. It was part of Middlesex. So although it's relatively close, it was considered a totally separate area at that time. And so would this area have been an area of affluence? Because these houses look pretty affluent. Absolutely, yeah. If you think that it was mainly courtiers and, and merchants who were making money from their trading in the city of London, that gives a flavour of the kind of people that were living here. And they're all, as you see, individual, freestanding, detached houses. So it's not a case of people being crammed together in impoverished conditions by any means. So this is a model of the actual Sutton House itself. Yeah, this is what Sutton House looked like, as far as we know, when it was built in 1535. And the shape of it and, and the kind of essential feel of it hasn't actually altered very much. But the most noticeable difference is from the front because it actually had a Georgian makeover in 1741. And that put a kind of facade on the front which hid the gabled pointy roofs and also replaced the windows with Georgian style windows, which we still have. So the front does appear to be quite different these days and that means people often don't realise that this is a Tudor house but the model gives away uh, what it would look like and from the back actually it's quite unchanged and as I mentioned the other big difference is that we see in this model a larger version of the knock garden that uh, was once at the back of Sutton House but at some point that land must have been sold off because there's a Victorian school on that land now. Okay cool, so should we move on? Yep, should we do the Linenfeld parlour next? Yes, let's do it. So this room's known as the Linenfold Parlour and that's because of the panelling that it's uh, fully lined with which has this very intricately carved design that looks like concertinaed linen really. And that was very labour intensive to produce and very time consuming. So it's a sign like the bricks of the wealth and status of the person living here. I mean, it goes top to bottom. And so what would have this room been used for? We think it was probably used by Ralph Sadler as his office, and then later by the second resident, John Matchell, who was a wool merchant who bought this as his rural retreat in 1550 from his City of London home. And he's actually probably responsible for installing this panelling. Carbon datings revealed that it's probably slightly older than the house itself, so it probably wasn't created for this house. And it's likely that somebody like John Matchell, or possibly a later resident, Captain John Millward, brought it with them when they moved in, which was really common for Tudor and Stuart uh, people to do when they moved house. They would bring everything with them. It's a really interesting room to come into because it's top to bottom wood. It really smells of wood and it's quite dark because it's really dark wood. And so can you talk to us a little bit about the association with the East India Company? So that's to do with the resident I mentioned, Captain John Millward, who moved in here in the 1620s. And he was a merchant, but he was a particular type of merchant known then as a merchant adventurer. And that meant that he was sailing the high seas, going to countries that the English were really just finding out about and trading goods there to bring back for sale in the English markets. So in his particular case, he was a trader in silk with Iran and he made a lot of money from that. 
and he was known to furnish the house very lavishly from his travels and from his trading and that's why we think he may have brought the linen fold panelling into the house and he did all this from within the East India Company. He was a merchant representing the East India Company. And that was a company that had been founded about 30 years earlier by Queen Elizabeth I to give English traders favourable terms, really, to trade with these countries, which were then known in England as the East Indies. And that's really a very catch-all term, meaning anything east of the Mediterranean, India, China, Japan. And John Matchell became very prominent in the company. His brother had actually helped found it. And then he became one of the governors shortly before he moved into this house. And that same decade while he was living here, the company started transporting enslaved people from East Africa to Indonesia. So we don't really, really know a lot more about what Millward's own involvement was, but he was a governor of the company at the time. I guess it's fair to say that there were probably some defining moments or important decisions made in this building, in this room. I would imagine so. It's very much where he would have brought people to impress them and to do his business dealings. And that continued right through many of the residents, really, up until the 1980s, when the trade union leader, Clive Jenkins, used this room as his office. And it's worth pointing out that you've got some extra resources available to explore this. You've had a school come in and do some work about it. Yeah, just before COVID, we worked with a local school to investigate the house's links with the East India Company. As well as John Millward having been a governor, he actually lost his money when the value of silk declined and American cotton came into the marketplace and he had to remortgage the house to another East India Company governor and via marriage it ended up with the daughter of the founder of the East India Company. So there are at least three links between the house and the company in terms of ownership. I'm conscious I don't want to make you tell the whole tour so if we move on. Yeah I think so yeah, yeah. I told you the bulk of this room really. Yeah. Anyway, so. Okay, so we're standing right now in front of a very impressive window. Can you tell us about the importance of it, maybe what it looks like? What's it called? Absolutely, yeah. It's known as the Armada window, which gives us some idea of its age, although we've actually discovered later through modern carbon dating again that the window is actually about the same age as the house. So the legend is that it was made from the wood of the Spanish Armada, which was about 50 years after the house was built but we've dispelled that really, and we just think it's an original window, but obviously a wonderful thing to have because most of the windows were replaced by the Georgians with the style that they then preferred that let more light into the house. So we think that this one escaped because it was probably hidden by some kind of shed or construction at that time, and the Georgians weren't too bothered about replacing this particular one. So uh, it gives us a flavour of how the whole house would have looked originally. So these windows are those quite classic diamond that I guess are quite classic of Tudor time period. So would these windows have been all over the house originally? The whole house would have had leaded windows originally because the Tudors could only make very small panes of glass. They were hand blowing the glass, so they couldn't make huge plate glass windows like the Victorians eventually innovated. So that's why Tudor windows have little diamond shapes that people might be familiar with because that's really as much glass as they could produce at any one time. That's interesting, I didn't realise that. Where should we go now? Is it um, the Great Chamber, yes, upstairs. Okay. And so these stairs, they're painted, aren't they? Or Yeah, which we also think were installed by John Millward in the 1620s. And again, they were a sign of his wealth, really, and they were a way of showing off to his guests. But he mustn't have been able to afford an actual oak staircase, we don't think, because instead he went for this trompe l'oeil version, this to deceive the eye version, 
of a staircase which is just painted on the walls and it has various animals that are supposed to look like carved animals on the walls so there's a, a goat and a, a lion and a dog and probably a griffin up at the top of the stairs and some more decorative areas that look a bit more like a typical oak staircase um, some carved looking areas but it's all painted and it's not that deceptive to us these days but if you imagine it in the dark by candlelight it would have been quite impressive at the time i love that i feel like if he was doing this today he would be a tiktok sensation <laughs> of diy yeah let's carry on okay so this is the great chamber another very impressive room lots of light very echoey good acoustics tell us about this room well the house would originally have had a great hall on the ground floor which was a banqueting hall with a big spit fire and that kind of thing but that was lost when the house was later split in half by the georgians but we're lucky to still have the great chamber which would have been above it and it's a very large room of the same kind of dimensions of the great hall because it's another room that was used for socializing so when they had parties here back in the 1500s, they would have started off in the Great Hall on the ground floor, eating the savoury courses of the banquet, and then they would have come up here to the Great Chamber on the first floor to have the sweet courses, and then later to push the furniture aside and dance and make merry in here until the early hours, no doubt. And one of the ways we know about that is that under this floor, there are actually double joists going in both directions which indicate that the room was always built for a lot of heavy foot traffic and you know it makes it very likely that dancing was always the plan for this room a bit like a modern nightclub really mm, i love that it's the kind of room that you walk in and there's big oil paintings on either side and obviously that is a sign of wealth and importance can you tell us a little bit about these two are quite interesting. So it's a man and a woman. Yeah, we have a few paintings in this room of descendants of Ralph Sadler, the original owner. And the ones on the left-hand side of the room are Sir Edwin Sadler and his wife, Lady Mary. And those were painted in 1687. And obviously it's great to have pictures of his descendants, but they're also interesting because they were painted by a female portraitist called Mary Beale and she was making a very good living as a society artist at that time, which is really unusual for the 1680s. She actually had her own studio um, down in central London near Piccadilly, I think. So it's nice for us. We have a lot of male stories about that early period of the house, and it's nice to have an important female story as well. Absolutely. And then this chap here, the other end of the room, a very big and grand painting. Who is he? Yeah, we have a large painting of another Ralph Sadler, who is actually the great-grandson of the original Ralph Sadler who lived here. And this picture's from the 1620s, so it's coming up to 100 years after the original Ralph Sadler lived here. And being such a large room, this room has lent itself to welfare and social type uses as well later on. And particularly, it's been a school on a few occasions. So it was a school as early as 1687, when it was Mrs. Freeman's School for Girls. And again, that was quite unusual to have a dedicated girls' school at that time. But Hackney was becoming known as an area for girls' education, and more and more schools were springing up around here. And that continued over the next couple of hundred years, really. And this building was actually a school again, another girls' school, from 1841, when it was the Milford House Academy. And that was after the house had been split in half, so it was just about two-thirds of the house with a girls' school. 
And when we restored the house in 1991, we actually found a lot of material from the school under the floor in this room, which is nice because the house has had so many uses that a lot of the original contents have been swept away every time it's changed use. So to find these old school materials, which were mainly things like shoes and gloves and letters and that kind of ephemera really, has meant that we've got things that actually come from the house and when it was being used by some of the former residents here. And another way that this room was used was when the whole house was actually a church institute from 1891. And that related to St John's Church in the centre of Hackney, which is quite a well-known landmark. And the idea of the institute was to provide a place for young men of the area to pass the time and learn skills for the trades that they might go into. And in a way, it was like a youth club to keep them off the streets, really. And this room was used as the billiards room which given that it's a fully panelled, you know, wood-lined room, I think it really lends itself to the idea of playing billiards and card games and things in here. And then quite a few of those lads went off to fight in the Second World War together as what was called a pals battalion. They all signed up together and sadly a lot of them didn't come back. So we have their names carved on the wall in the panelling to remind us of the people who would have played billiards and cards in here but lost their lives in the war. Mm. And this is... First World War. Yeah. Interesting. So lots of uses. Yeah, it's always been a great social and often a a good welfare space as well. I mean, even when we had squatters actually living in the house in the early 80s, they used this room with all of the children. I've seen video footage of that, of them using it almost as a creche type area for the children. I mean, I still can't get over the fact that there were squatters living in a Tudor house. You'd have no idea. (laughs) No, you wouldn't now. It has been fully restored, but we do still have one room that gives an indication of how the squatters lived here, so we can talk about that. Yes, we can. So on either side of the great chamber, there would have been two bedrooms. One of them was his wife. Yeah, we think so. We think that Helen had one of the chambers and Ralph had the other chamber, either side of the great chamber. And they used the rooms then in, in quite a different way to the way we use bedrooms now in that lots of social activities happened in there as well. So that's something we do talk about in more detail on the tour. And there's a beautiful kind of restored Tudor carpet, painted carpet, painted rug on the floor. We have a, a reconstruction of a Tudor floor covering, which always surprises people. It's very brightly coloured and looks quite modern, but it is typical of what the Tudors would have had. Yeah, so it's worth it just to come and have a look at that and see that in its majesty, really. Perfect. Let's move on squatter's to room. squatter's room. Okay, so we have now moved in to a room that is so different from the rest of the house like if you think about really dark wood paneled rooms that are really impressive have a lot of uh, significance to them and then when we walk into this one at the top of the house graffiti and like paintings like all over the walls so tell us about why what who was living in here so in the early 80s the national trust who owned the house by then had a bit of a problem in that it needed a lot of restoration and the cost was going to be very high and they were trying to work out what to do really and how they could meet the costs. And ideally they were looking for an office tenant to move into the house, but they struggled to do that. And so the house was left empty for quite a a long period, really a couple of years. And eventually squatters moved into it in 1985, which was not an uncommon thing in the mid eighties in Hackney. There were a lot of squatted properties lots of people looking for cheap or free places to live and uh, it was an area of artists and quite a lot of unemployed people and so it, it kind of fitted in with the the scene at the time 
But this house was particularly attractive to squatters because by then it was officially registered as an office rather than a house. So it wasn't actually illegal to squat in it if it was empty, as long as you weren't damaging it in any way. And our squatters actually moved in here with some really positive intentions. They were looking for somewhere to set up some kind of community hub and they moved in here and they renamed it the Blue House, although the house isn't blue in any sense, but they'd already decided they wanted to call it that. And they started to run all kinds of community activities from here, like artistic and theatrical workshops and gigs and club nights, skills training for local unemployed people. They had a vegetarian cafe here. So they were running all this kind of activity and about eight people at the, uh, the peak period were living here as well in rooms like this one. And this is one that's kind of escaped the uh, restoration projects in a way because it's up at the top of the house. Um, it's an area that originally was used as an exhibition room, but we decided to put it back to the way that the squatters would have had it and uh, to reveal that mural, for example, where we have a, a mural on the wall based on a, an album cover from the time. Um, because the more time passes since the squatters lived here, the more it becomes a chapter of the house's history and something that we want to celebrate and talk about. And so would have any of the other rooms in the house ever have looked like this? Probably not quite as much because the squatters were actually very respectful of the fabric of the house. So the panelled rooms weren't damaged. They would never have carried out graffiti artwork like this in those rooms. But the rooms would have looked, you know, in other ways, like a quite a casual bedsit type room like this one does. Most of the squatters had their own room. So rooms like the linen fold parlour, for example, was somebody's bedroom during that period. Really? Yeah. Oh my God, can you imagine having that room as your bedroom? Yeah. Um, yeah, so for example, there's a mattress on wooden pallets in the middle of the room and a sofa with lots of clothes on it. And one thing that I've just been admiring is the posters. Are these original or have they been added? It's a combination of the two. The red mural that is sometimes visible on our website is an original mural that was just covered over initially when the National Trust opened the house up to the public. And then when they decided later to start to celebrate the period that the squatters were here, they added some more. So the one that you're standing next to is a reconstruction from photographs of what would have been on that wall. Yeah, and so it's things like Red Bird and Orange Moon Rave, 31st of November, 1985, Sutton House. Visit the Devil Rave, Sutton House, 1986. Checkmate, I don't know what that is, but it's at the Blue House. That might be a play, I think. Uh, right, there yeah. Or plays held here as well. That would make sense. It's such a marked change from the rest of the house. It's amazing. I think it's great that you guys have kept it, that you've thought that it was an important enough part of your history to keep. It's particularly important because it led to what happened next as well. So the fact that the squatters were using the house as a community centre, effectively, and that when they, they were eventually evicted, mainly because of noise nuisance, because they were holding lots of gigs and, uh, and club nights here. But after that, the National Trust felt that it had run out of options and they were thinking of selling the house. But because the squatters had used it as a community centre, there was an expectation by then that local people would be able to use it and access it. And it launched a huge campaign to save the house and to use it as a community hub, as well as it being a historic site for people to visit. So these days, and it has been slightly interrupted now by COVID, but generally we try and keep the house very open for community activities as well as for heritage visitors. And we run all kinds of things from learning and schools events through to cultural events, acoustic gigs and readings and even weddings and parties. And all of that really was sparked by the way that the squatters use the house. 
And I think it's quite likely that without their period here, the trust would have just sold the house and it would never have become what it is today. Wow. They did a lot of good then for I it. I think so, yeah. I think people are surprised. Yeah, I think that's really important to stress. Yeah. And so one of my final questions is, I mean, it's an old house. Are there spirits? Are there ghosts? <laughs> Certainly plenty of reports of ghosts, yeah. Various ones, really. Um, John Matchell and his son, John Matchell Jr., who were the second and third residents, had lurcher dogs and they were quite notorious for striding around the area with their dogs. And several people have said that they've sighted the dogs in the house when they've been here on their own in the evening or people have felt the dogs rub against their legs. Uh, hasn't happened to me as yet, but uh, it might well do. And there's also a lady called Frances Cotton who died giving birth to twins here. She was actually John Matchell Jr.'s wife, so the third resident. She's believed to have been seen in the house and known as the Lady in White, who is roaming the house looking for her twin children that uh, they survived, but she died. And there's also been reports of a blue lady um, up in one of the rooms that the squatters were living in, which somebody was spending the night here for some reason and were woken up in the middle of the night by somebody shaking the bed. So there have been quite a few reports. And the house was actually on Most Haunted in 2007 as well, although I haven't actually managed to see the episode myself and I'm a bit frightened to do so. Yeah, it's also worth watching just because Lee Ryan from Blue is in it, um, randomly enough. Okay, great. And I've just got one final question and it's just more about why do you think it's important to keep places like this open, to keep them going? I think this particular house is really important for people to be able to see because there are so few Tudor houses left in London now. The Great Fire of London swept the vast majority of them away in, in the more central part of the city. So for one thing, it gives people a flavour of how people lived 500 years ago that they might otherwise struggle to get. But also it has so many layers to it. It kind of tells us a bit about how society has evolved and we can talk about how the Georgians lived here, how the Victorians lived here, and right up to the present day and the recent history of the squatters and the community uses. So I think a house like this tells us a lot about social history generally and the fact that we're still using it for community activity shows that it still has a really important role to play. How can people come find you? The house is currently open for guided tours only on Wednesdays, Fridays and Sundays and we run a couple of tours a day on weekdays and three tours on Sundays. It's advised to book a place on our website but we've actually just introduced a few walk-up places as well so people can always try their luck on one of those days and uh, if we've got space we'll add them to the tour. Thank you so much to Joe and to Sutton House for letting me roam around those fascinating halls after hours. Honestly, it is such a great day out. So if you find yourself in Hackney, or not even if you happen to find yourself in Hackney, make the journey this side of London and book yourself onto one of those tours. It's honestly one of the most interesting days out I think you'll have. And it's great for families as well. They have a Tudor kitchen down there that has some fun interactive activities where you can look to see what Tudors were cooking and smell things that they were cooking and eating and it honestly is like stepping into a time machine also if you're just keen for some visuals make sure to give the instagram a follow it is the east london history show on instagram if you fancy having a look to see what any of these episodes are about some of the things that we're talking about and while you're at it why not leave us a rating on wherever you're listening to this podcast on i'm not going to get ahead of myself i'm well aware 
aware that it is most likely my mum and maybe my dad listening to this podcast. But you know, if you're there, just just leave us a little five star rating. It would just be nice to know that you're enjoying it. And maybe tell your friends while you're at it. But that's enough from me. I will see you next week for another fascinating episode and story about this little corner of East London.